This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Sieber. Good morning, good afternoon, good uh, evening, wherever you are in the world. Yes, Peter, welcome. So, the last episode of the year, but wow. before we end the year with Hans Uskoreit, let's do a short news part. You want to start? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm not sure it's going to be short, but there you go. It's never really short. <laughs> it's always the same with, with us, yes. <laughs> I would say, what a year. Uh, yeah, number one, we have an AI act. We could spend hours and hours, which we, of course, are not going to do. What are we going to share regarding the AI act? I mean, we can do it just together. Maybe just some couple thoughts, right? First things as they come spring to my mind. I think number one was... I, I think they stick to this implementation of the risk levels, right? Sure. They've been looking at that structure for many years. So there's a couple of things that are prohibited. Then there's high risk. And that's what we may be if we get into the, what does this all mean to our listeners of the industrial AI? What does that mean? And I'm not sure that we know that. That's one thing. Open source, maybe you can talk about that because you had already the interview last week, actually, right? Yeah, I recommend the last week episode with Bernhard Nessler because he explained it very well. But he was a little bit afraid of this open source regulation, especially when it comes to research. So we need to to dig deeper into this uh, into the final paper, which is not published yet. I think so. That's interesting. And now, what is important? I think we need to talk about, uh, or we have to talk the next one and one and a half year about the standardization company uh, the standardization process now because this is very important that we now find the right standards for the implementation of the AI act so that's a very important topic now that the companies, because they are part of the standardization committees, play an important role in this. What I recall from the interview you did with uh, both Bernhard and also Thomas Toms, both from uh, Trustify. And by the way, those listeners, I mean, those lucky few, I should almost say, that are going to be part of the AI in the Alps, we're going to have a track on certification with both with, with both of them or one of them joining. Or Bernhard is there and Markus is there. And I'm not sure if Thomas is also there. We will check this out in January there for a, a final call with them. Yeah, Good. But more sharing with all of you how important we do see this. We, we don't want to make it like too big and too deep, but... And I would say, especially for those of you listeners that are responsible in your organization for certification, and that is not an unimportant thing, you know, in the end, you want to sell your uh, machines, you want to sell your services across the world, you know, specifically in this case in Europe. And what I did not know, as you did the interview, and I only found out later, uh, that both of them did a paper together with SEP. It's only a couple of two months or three months old. I think it's a must read for those of you in charge. It's called Functional Trustworthiness of AI Systems by Statistically Valid Testing. As I said, so that's very important. I, I do want to share maybe two, three more thoughts. I'm not sure that you have one one or two more. I was surprised by one quote by Bernard, the, the recertification process. That's very interesting because when you have a running model and now you want to, to update it or you have ML ops or you want to train it again, you need to recertificate this model maybe. So we will have ML ops, we will have product ops, we will have certification ops maybe also in the future. Well, and I'm even not certain about, you know, you're already talking and he did about recertification. I'm not sure we really understand the details of the certification. And I think that's what the paper is about. And that's what the interview is about. Two, three more things on that. I think number one is that we still have um, a definition that is very wide. If, if that is correct, what I hear is that it's based on the OECD definition. And I'm going to just mention it just one more time. The, if it is the OECD one, it says an AI system is a machine-based system for explicit or implicit objectives, infers from the input it receives how to generate outputs 
such as predictions, contents, recommendations, decisions that can influence physical virtual. Number one, way too complex. Number two, you could almost read over this inferring and how to, you know, of course you shouldn't read over it, but if you would do that, it is about 100% of the systems that we have had since the 1970s or 50 years in industrial environment. We always take an input and we make an output out of it, right? Now, so the only thing that is in there is this weird inferring on how to. And it's almost implying that there would be something like a model. But even if there is a model, I mean, a model does not typically infer on how to generate. That's, I think, that's almost like nonsense. Well, who am I? <laughs> I to say that a definition, which I'm sure there have been hundreds of scientists, but maybe that is the problem. And I'm sure that all of you listeners, all of you have your own opinion on how maybe a better definition could look like. But I think there's a huge a problem in there. So that's number one. And then in the end, I, I, I think we do not really understand, right? I mean, specifically, we saw medical systems. There are still like uh, safety components, but it's still, I, I believe that most of us in the industrial world are still waiting for what is it exactly that makes now my machine, my machine producing things, what does it or does it not make an artificial intelligence system? Yes or no? And what to do? about that yeah and i'm a little bit confused when when i follow your linkedin or our linkedin post and i think most people are confused because there's a difference between discrimination and safety and the, the most people say oh why why is the ai disc discriminating somebody who works with a robot no it's not about discrimination it's about safety and people who are not in this deep in this industrial ai area or field maybe do not know what it means safety and safety regulations because safety was also a very very big topic uh, 10 15 years ago yeah yeah sure always have. and yeah because there's a lack of understanding or different language or they use different words and mean maybe the same but we need to be clearer there at this point we talk about safety and ai and if there is safety and ai we have the ai act regulation high risk uh, applications Yeah, and that is then the other thing we need to understand if we're going to have additional regulation on top of all the regulation which we have today, which of course has been for five years. Five years, and I have mentioned it, of course, a couple of times. But yes, I was there uh, 2018, I think two times that year. Uh, I was uh, I was not part of the elected, I think, what, 175 uh, typically professors of all kinds of different areas related to artificial intelligence, high-level interest group, it was called, I believe, on artificial intelligence. But I was there, invited myself, uh, wasn't invited, but did interact, and we did discuss the very, very, very basics of what now five years later comes out. And I think we all, and then in reading also again this paper, uh, I wasn't, I was then thinking, well, how can that then be? I mean, who really has been, and I'm sure that they have had representatives of the trade organizations like the German VDMA of the machine builders, ZVEE, but also European level and many other ones. I'm sure they have. But when I then read this paper and, and Bernhard starts making comments, then in the end, yeah, I don't know. I still don't know the details. And I think most of us do not. I think we just need to stay very close and really find out Uh, what machines are going to be called uh, in what level, what machines are going to be high risk or not. I think that is the question. And if what section of those machines are going to be high risk, what does that then mean? I think we're going to be following that in the next uh, couple of months. Absolutely. And we will have to, to wait until the standardization groups are on, or the working groups, and they need to define Now the use cases, I think, and they work and everybody is invited to work in this working group. Okay, there you go. I think it's very important to be part of that now. Well, then if that is so, yeah, sure. And that's what we're going to be following as well. Those of you that feel, you know, you can, you know, add some value in such a way that in the end, you know, we're going to have a regulation. In a, I think m many of us do. I mean, 
at the same time, having said that many of you do not agree that we need regulation, it's a very sensitive topic. I, I do believe that we do need regulation. And of course, we need it in the right way, such that it's going to provide a huge opportunity for all of us, not only for Europe. It's always this European and the world. Uh, I don't like that. It's going to be a, an opportunity for the world because I'm sure that the other countries, uh, continents are going to follow. I'm relatively certain about that. doesn't mean that they're going to be 100% the same, but the direction is going to be the same. And it should be an opportunity for all of us, making sure that the threat of AI, which Im is implicitly there, that that's not going to come out, so to say, that we're going to be using AI in a positive sense. But one more comment. In my opinion, or also Bernard was, was in this group, the timetable is very ambitious, I think. In 2025 is very ambitious. If you think about standardization groups and working groups on this topic, uh, I remember the cobot standardization groups and stuff like that. We had a pandemic between this. And yeah, it's very ambitious, very ambitious. So we wish them good luck. Good luck, yeah. So my news of the week comes from Japan because there was a big uh, trade fair show, the IREX. It's a, the biggest robotics show in the world. And what was interesting for us, Peter, Japanese robotics manufacturers want to offer a joint database for small and medium-sized medium enterprises. So Fanuc, Denso, Panasonic, Yaskawa, Nachi, Kawasaki, Epson, Daijin, and Mitsubishi are involved. And in the future... The group is considering to combining generative artificial intelligence with a new database in order to further lower the threshold of for automation. So very interesting. The biggest Japan Japanese robotics manufacturers offer a joint database. That's that's huge, I think. Yeah, it's the topic of today. My talk with uh, Hans, you know, it's all about uh, foundation in general, but then specific industrial foundation, and I would almost say a subset of the higher level industrial. Yeah, I would say is robotics. Yeah, not to make it small, but just you know, it's big, big enough in itself. But it's and and if we're gonna then have robotics foundation models are going to be part of the bigger industrial foundation models. Yeah, I recommend the episode with Abhinav Valada, the ImageNet moment of robotics. What about you, Peter? Uh, I have a very specific request from Manuel Niklas. He's a student in industrial engineering. He is at FAUL Lang in Nuremberg. Is that where you teach, Robert? Or? No, no, I'm at the Technical University. Oh, it's the other one. Okay. Uh, anyway, so Manuel, as part of his master's thesis, he is uh, conducting interviews with companies that are using AI in their manufacturing process. Uh, the focus is going to be on resources required to implement and use AI applications in manufacturing as well as how they are used efficiently within an organization. So if you're interested, kindly get in contact with him. Uh, you're probably going to find him on LinkedIn, Manuel Nicholas, M-A-N-U-E-L, Nicholas, N-I-K-L-A-S. I want to talk about hardware because I did an interview with Keba last week on the subject of AI and gray boxes and infrastructure. And in preparation for the for the interview, I read a quote that that stuck in my head. And this quote I, I like I like to share with you. The quote is there's a war going out there in AI and NVIDIA is the only arms dealer. <laughs> and once again i want to come back because i i get a a tip from fabian bauser from from Beckhoff, uh, best regards to to fail he said rmd now starts the race to catch up with nvidia and he said that the company will offer its software as open source so maybe this is a, a game changer maybe not uh, but he said um, a colleague of him was at the Europe's and saw that and informed Fabian about that and then he told me so um, very interesting AMD is starts the race to catch up yeah I think we discussed 
discussed that already uh, in general a couple of times. Why NVIDIA? I think it's about their library, right? Yes. Yep. Which they, which everybody, you know, you use a library. And if you're stuck to the library, you know, <laughs> it's more like, yeah. So who were you suggesting AMD is going to open up their library or what? No, AMD starts the race to catch up. At yeah, it. yeah, and the AMD will offer its software as open source. Yeah, yeah, right. But then again, I I am not into the details, so I'm I'm Me just too. sharing. No, but I'm now just sharing this general thought. Yeah. If whatever the name of the library is, that the CUDA uh, is yeah, that the number CUDA. one. They have a couple yeah. of ones. If so, if that is then open and anybody can use that one, then there would be no re. It's it's like we've been talking open. CUA so many times. The idea is you're a big car manufacturer, you have a hundred different, um, you have one brand of robotic in your in your production line, but there's other brands as well there. If you're programming the one brand, let's say the KUKA, and you don't have the extra KUKA standing there, it's broken. Maybe you need to wait a week or two, whatever. We just talked about it. Maybe it needs to come from, in this case, from, I don't know, maybe from Germany or China. Uh, I don't know. If you're programming it at a higher level, in this case, OPC UA, you can just swap it the same day. Maybe three hours later, you're running again. And that would be the same if you're programming your AI systems, your machine learning systems, your uh, LLM systems, maybe let's say on uh, on a CUDA, and on then below it you can only have. I talk about it in general, the NVIDIA systems, if that is being opened up, or at least all the other hardware, the AMDs and the Intels and the graph cores, whoever they are, they understand the the calls to the CUDA library, and that is what I'm not certain about, then there is no need to exclusively go with this one provider, as you, as you just uh, suggested, right? So interesting. Exactly. In the end, you still need to be able to produce silicon, right? Yes. And there was this discussion also here in Germany somewhere where this is not like, I mean, producing silicon. It's, I mean, <laughs> the time that I was there, and it's only going to be becoming more difficult all the time. It's a very, very, very difficult thing to do that only a handful of companies today are capable of doing, right? So we have so many companies designing silicon. That's one. But then producing the silicon, yeah. that's still a different topic. I already mentioned in Europe, and we have congratulations to our former guest, Jakub Tomczak from the Technical University of Eindhoven, because he will be the program chair of the conference next year. Oh, that's huge, Peter, right? It is huge, yeah, right? Oh, is it actually next year? Yeah, I I saw it, but I I thought that he was doing something this year already. But is it the is it for the next year? It's for next year, twenty twenty four. Jakob will be the program chair. Uh, wow! You had considered visiting this year for whatever reason it didn't work out, but maybe we should then really consider going there. You or I, or both of us, going there next year. Yes, absolutely. And Jakob will also be in Frankfurt on January twenty fourth at our AI in industry conference together with Hannover Messe. Wow. So if you don't have a gift for a Christmas yet, you should uh -huh. buy it ticket i think yeah oh yeah that's amazing that's amazing interesting to uh, of course we do not uh, well we can maybe assume how that works but how he got to be chosen at least one criteria would be the work he has been doing in the field i guess right? but we have always the best people from the machine learning uh, community in our podcast oh yeah i forgot yeah so it's the fact that he was actually in a podcast yeah he was in our podcast i think uh, oh and that's how. so for those of you that want to be the chair of new ribs in the future make sure you line up for a podcast with Robert and myself. Absolutely. Do you have still something more? Yeah, I want to. I want to slightly go into looking to the future. So, if we say, yeah, let me let me chat two three sentences about the the main topic of today. Yep. So when I was at in Berlin Machine Learning Week Europe, I mentioned that it was a month six weeks ago. I did talk to Hans Uskoreit. He's the scientific director at DFKI, the German Research Center. Uh, And the, the chief scientist at newly established founded Nionic, right? And Hans is not to be confused, by the way, with Jacob. That's another Jacob. This is the Jacob with a K, Jacob. His son is the co-writer of the famous Attention is All You Need paper. But then, so son has been following father because that has been in AI for all of his life. So very interesting. Uh, I think we talk about... 
he did a summary of the keynote that he gave at the machine learning week, foundation models, potential, diversity, limitations. So we talk about leveraging large language models and we talk about generative AI for industry. It was a very nice uh, interview. He starts off with an eye-opening, for me, eye-opening explanation. For you, an eye-opening, wow. Uh, really. Once in a year, you get an eye-opening moment in our podcast. <laughs> oh, no, I hadn't really... Uh, realized, I guess, until I was sitting there opposite of Hans and he was explaining why we need industrial models, although you and I had talked about it a couple of times. And, and, and he's saying like, we have had our chat GPT, our large language models, uh, and they have scraped general Wikipedia style novel kind of information, general language, human language from the internet. And of course, a little bit of that is sometimes here or there, a little bit of industrial, but that doesn't mean that we can use them for, for that reason. We are going to need to train models on um, industrial knowledge. Yeah. So I think it's a perfect close of the 2023 year of the language models. I mean, we, let's chat a little bit about, you know, what was this year, what is going to next year going to bring us. And I, I believe I'm going to make a kind of a bold statement. Stay with me for a moment. So I'm going to go back to 1886. What happened in that year? 1886. Yeah, you can quickly if you want to ask ChatGPT or... No, you, you give me the answer, please. You are my ChatGPT. Okay, Carl Benz, he applies for a patent, uh, and the patent is called a vehicle with gas engine operation. And that moment is regarded as the birth certificate of the automobile. So now we're 150 years later. We have about 1.5 billion cars. Uh, we have thousands of brands, right, and that we consumers can choose from. Now, I'm, and I'm going to compare this with... Uh, clear with the large language models, right? So despite of the fact that I think the first ideas of maybe computational linguistics, as it was called, are from the 30s, 1930s. And then there's a long, long time that only for those of you that have been really, really, really specialist. Uh, but then we come to word to vec That's another interesting reference here because that's the famous algorithm 10 years ago. And the, the writers of that one, they got an award at NeurIPS, I recall. Yep. Did you see that as well? They got an yep. award. So yep. word to vec word to vec puts words into vectors, the basis of which is then. Also, don't forget LSTM. And we're closing off the 25 years celebration this year, right? You know, it's only a couple of days, <laughs> LSTM. And the basis was uh, was then for Transformer, you know, and working with the same kind of putting words in, in vector space and doing certain things five years ago, six years ago, 2017. And then for me really is, you know, GPT-3 was there 2020, but it's really ChatGPT. ChatGPT for me is let's let's call it the bands of LLMs. You know, the ooh, birth certificate. Ooh, 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 yeah, ooh, the birth ooh. certificate. Oh, this is not my bold statement yet. It's going to oh, get worse. Oh, it's going to get worse. This is, I think, for me, this is the birth certificate of large language models, right? So here we are, 2023, a year later, you know, because we've had now ChatGPT for a year. Now I'm going to come to a hugging phase Uh, hugging face for those of you that haven't been there, AI community building the future. It's where the world shares and tests large language models, right? So, and I spent an hour there yesterday. I was going to see a series, The Crown on Netflix uh, together with my wife, but I had already seen the part where Diana dies. It was way too sad. So I decided to go to a hugging phase. And so it's amazing what you find here. And again, I'm sure that now many of you listeners have been going here. This is now one minute for those of you that haven't been going there at all. You will find it's unbelievable. 438,854 models. Large language models, right on Huggy Face. And by the way, one of them is Google Gemini. We haven't talked about Google Gemini at all. And we don't need to. It's, it's okay. I think every week we see, see a new LLM. We see a bigger LLM. Yeah. 
And it always reminds me who has the longest, the biggest, you know? <laughs> and that's a very good point that you bring that in because I'm going to just share a couple of ways that you can look at. You can look at tasks. So you look at multimodal, graph machine, computer vision. You can make all these different clicks and then you see all these models in different versions. Right? You can look at the libraries. I'm not going to go into the details. You look at all the data sets. There's thousands of data sets there. You can look at the languages, you know, not only Polish, Finnish, Chinese, Catalan. What did I see there? Uh, languages I had never, ever heard of. Yoruba, Yoruba. I think there's about uh, 1,500 languages there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's also carbon emission. Another topic we didn't discuss today, research suggested that if you create 1,000 images with a powerful model, like stable diffusion, it's the same uh, for carbon dioxide as driving 4.1 miles in a gasoline-powered car. It's a different topic. Uh, we, we can't do everything. We already had an episode with, with Mila on this topic, right? Not about LLMs, but about general machine learning topic. What is so good about this is that they bring it down to what everybody, well, at least we can almost understand. You know, people in Europe need to think about what a mile is. And I'm not sure what a thousands of a mile is, is that and a foot? Because that would mean that one image produces CO2 at the same as, you know, driving 30 centimeters. I'm not sure if that is correct. But the, the good thing is here, and I, I'm not making fun of it. This is very important for all of us. The good thing here was, and then they compare it with another model, and that's only 0 0.0006. It's a factor of 10,000. So again, if you're interested in that topic, you go to Hugging Face, you choose your model on the basis of carbon. So now I come to my point slowly here. Yes, if any of you, you know, in your Christmas time, you know, end of year. Just looking at the crown and you go to Hugging Face. We go, we all are going to have our Christmas dinners. We are all going to opening our boxes. Some of us do not um, because we don't believe so strongly. Actually, Dutch people have had uh, their gifts already during uh, Nicholas time, December the 6th. So uh, you're going to have family discussions, but maybe there's going to be a point where you think, oh, you think of this one minute and Peter suggested I should go spend an hour on hugging face. <laughs> my expectation, and that is going to be the close uh, from my side, actually, is going to be, it's not, you know, in the next couple of years, I'm so convinced that all of us are going to have not just one car already today. Some of us have a personal car and a business car, not all of us, but, but that is the case. I believe all of us are going to have a range of what I call personal intelligent assistants. So we're going to call them PS, PIA, PIA, PIAs, uh, similar to the Microsoft Copilot. And they're going to support us in our private lives, right? And in our business lives. You know, that's what I'm going to be completely convinced of. And I do the comparison to the cars because those of us that, you know, want to decide to choose a brand, you know, that's, that's how it is going to be. In the future, each of us are going to choose We are going to, for our work, we're going to choose some kind of industrial, personal, uh, intelligent assistant. And for our private lives, you know, you're going to have yours. I'm going to, I'm going to have mine. So it depends on who I trust or how I choose my personal assistant. And that's where... If you haven't done so yet, jump into it. You don't need to jump further if you, but you can if you want to spend easily a first hour on, for example, hugging phase. I have no interest specifically in hugging phase. It's just, but I think it is the platform where where you have the the biggest overview. You can spend a bit of time. You get a little bit of a feeling for how massive this world of large language models has come, and that is probably kind of you know it's the best maybe also bringing together what has been, you know, 2023 for us. And we always try as much as we can for you in an industrial environment, you know, tell you, share with you what we believe is happening in the industrial space, right? And, you know, LLMs have been the big topic for the last year. I believe it's still going to be the big topic for the next year. How do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. But I think we will see smaller LLMs. We will see 
specific LLMs on specific use cases. I will record an episode with Dr. Andreas Nawatz from Bosch tomorrow about their investment in Aleph Alpha and what are their plans. And he, he already told me, yeah, we will go in specific models. They now have a model for generating artificial uh, pictures to find out more mistakes on their products and more um, that they can use this data to train uh, AI in the on the shop floor. So we will see specialized, specific uh, large language models or vision models. Yeah, I think that's the future. And we, we need to, because we need to talk also about energy consumption of big, 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 big large language models. Yeah. Yeah, right. But then then the point I was trying to make before, then it's very, very important to bring the energy consumption down at the level where we can really start comparing. And then we can decide if we're going to produce an image. And then we are aware that we are producing CO2 in the lines of uh, really, I was not jokingly meant it, but the thing is that maybe one meter, if I'm correct, if I choose the right model. And if I choose another model, it's 1,000 meters, it's one kilometer, or maybe even a mile. And if there's those huge differences, then it's perfectly okay for, you know, for many of us to say, okay, we're going to choose the model that uses uh, less uh, less energy and then and that's the good thing of the open source then the other one is again forced to to change their approach as well right the the one thing that i really hope and that i haven't liked at all maybe the last year that i do expect the developers to change is that not we humans need to do hours of prompt engineering training I can't see it anymore, really. <laughs> no, all those suggestions. Oh, I have the best prompt engineering. You know, eventually, please, dear developers, you know, take all that wonderful, great uh, suggestions and thoughts on what we humans should be doing prompting. Take it, please. Uh, as an input for the back end of your large language models yes. and, and make a solution for us humans. You know, it's not, why should we start, you know, learning to communicate with a language model rather than the language model starting to understand us? And the understanding is then quote unquote, of course, because if I don't say that, certain people are going to say people, Peter, you know, large language cannot understand. Uh, I do believe they, they, they should at least, yeah, I don't have another word. They should give me, in the end, a relevant answer. And if they do, there was a certain level of understanding. And I'm not suggesting it's the understanding at the human level. Peter, it was a pleasure. Robert, it was a pleasure. Looking forward to next year. Uh, this is number podcast, what did we say, 220 or which one is it? Two, no, more. <laughs> to look. I need to look up, wait. 220 somewhere. Oh, 224, which means we're going to have another 50 kind of uh, next year. Absolutely. Looking forward. It was a great year. Uh, learned so awfully many things. Um, Thank you very much, dear listeners. For what was your favorite episode, Peter, last year? I was going to look at back. I think it's going to be the one that we have today, actually. Yes, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Really. But then having said that, please now remind me and you you give me your one, two, three. And then I'm sure I'm going to say, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. So it's not it's not going to mean that I didn't like all the other ones. So w which one was yours? I found very interesting this episode, Requirements Engineering for Machine Learning, because th this topic will become more and more important, I think. Mm -hmm. okay. This was very interesting. And then, of course, I was very impressed by uh, the episode with the LLM as a co-pilot for robotic components, if you remember how they use the chat GPT to install their camera on the robot. That was very impressive, too. And then I think the XLSTM was also very interesting because I'm almost exploding. That was a quote by Sepp. So, yeah, this was the three favorite episodes. Yeah. The most famous quote of the year. Yeah, I'm almost exploding. And, of course, we're, we're waiting. We're still, you know, very anxious to hear from Sepp. Uh, you see more signals, um, you know, almost on a daily basis that, uh, you know, transformers are not going to be the, the, the final truths from an algorithmic perspective. So we're looking very much forward. And I think you uh, hear every now and then, but you can't, you can only share 
one or two or or nothing. So we're very much looking forward to uh, to hear as soon as Zap and his team can share with us. Yeah, and to all listeners, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Stay tuned. Maybe on New Year's Eve there will be an episode, maybe. I'm not sure, but we will have some music, maybe. So enjoy uh, the holidays. And now we go into the main part. Have a good rooch, we say. Rutsch. Have a good yeah. slide into the new year, all of you. In Würzburg we say, guten Beschluss. Oh, okay. A good a good ending or what? Yeah, then Beschluss means, yeah, good decision, yeah. <laughs> It's a very uh, regional uh, phrase. Right, good. See you again, hopefully in good health for all of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's start. I'm here at the Machine Learning Week Europe in Berlin, and opposite of me is sitting uh, Hans Uskoreit. Hans, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. So Hans is the uh, scientific director at uh, German Research Center for AI in German, DFKI, as we know it. And he's also the chief scientist at Nionic. Uh, Hans, please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, my name is Hans Uskowit. As Peter said, I'm active in artificial intelligence since the early 80s, actually. Uh, started in United States, then worked in research and at universities many years also in Germany, worked also three years in Beijing, started several AI companies, spin-offs of our research center. And now recently, after I had made the decision not to start another company, now because of this extremely promising wave uh, behind large language models, foundation models, We started a company doing exactly that, being active in the area of foundation models. After you decided not to do that? After we decided not to do it, yeah, then sometimes you, you make some decisions without counting on the world. Yeah, so then That's the, the, the wonderful, wonderful world of our life that nobody knows where it's uh, going to go, right? So you just uh, finished, uh, and by the way, since the 80s, not many people can say that, Uh, today, everybody seems to be doing uh, AI, and I'm one of those, but I, I can't say I've been doing it since, what is that, 40 years. And you've been doing, you've been going around the world, we talk about that later, and we'll also talk about founding um, new companies. So you just did your keynote over here. Can you maybe give us a summary, two, three sentences for our listeners, what it is that you've been talking about? Yeah, I was talking about, first of all, what makes the uh, foundation models different from previous AI waves or AI hypes. Secondly, why is it unlikely that there will be one single huge foundation model fulfilling all needs, why there will be a multitude of them needed in real life and making a change in the world. And then finally, I was talking about needs to do more what I call machine teaching, more machine education, then only looking for new algorithms, concentrating more on getting uh, the best out of the existing algorithms by making the machines smarter and smarter, especially for certain important areas in industry and society. Okay, thank you very much for that. Yeah, hype, hype is such a word. I mean, we have the, the, the Gardner hype cycle is maybe the most famous uh, the, taking care of the hype. Where, where are we then with AI? I mean, there's typically, if you're at the top, you're going to come down to the trough of disillusionment, yeah. I believe. Are we already in there? Are we going to get in there? And and then your opinion on exactly the models. So I hear you saying that the, the models are going to get out of the trough and they're going to have a some kind of big future. Yeah, so the Gardner places both actually foundation models and the, and the entire field of Gen AI, generative AI, at the top of the hype wave now. So that means exactly, Peter, you're right, that the, the next step should be in the the trough of disillusionment. And so Gardner is warning people and saying next year's will be tough on you yeah, because you will see that the models cannot do all the things that they promised to do. And I have a split opinion on it. On one hand, yes, they are right. It's at the peak of the wave. But secondly, for some applications that people hope large language models can do, yeah, some applications they can serve for, It's right, there will be disillusionment. For instance, there will be much less already general problem-solving capabilities than 
people expect now. But for other applications, the systems are so powerful that they are already the most powerful application, more powerful than others, and they are already killing jobs. Yeah? It's already killing human jobs. So that means, yeah, it depends on which application you have in mind. For some of them, there will be a trough of disillusionment. For others, there will be big money to be made. Right. At the same time, of course, we have had, you know, I, I would say from the beginning of since when was the big announcement, was it OpenAI a year ago, ChatGPT, maybe that's a big moment, I guess, but one moment in time, of course. But since then, we've had, of course, the symbolic people always telling us and continuously telling us, I'm not giving opinion here, but just trying to share what I feel, uh, saying what is not possible. Uh, and at the same time, Uh, the sub-symbolic. May I assume that you are more of the category of the, the sub-symbolic, but do you at the same time maybe also see potential danger of what the large language models are providing us? I have worked for most of my life more on the symbolic side, on symbolic processes and methods, because I thought that the real thinking, planning, autonomous, complex inferencing would maybe not be possible because humans have both mixed. In, we, in our brain, we have both the sub-symbolic type yeah, that we as a child learn or how we dance and how we walk and, and do lots of things. And then We also learn the symbolic way, not statistical, but it's sometimes it's enough that you hear one fact and then you can not only learn it, but you can immediately link it with all the other knowledge yeah? and you can even erase knowledge that is incompatible with a new fact. And this is impossible with the new machines. So the machines, the new machines still have very shortcomings, but they are more powerful because we learned that Lots of the symbolic uh, knowledge can actually be replaced by uh, knowledge that's gained from texts in a sub-symbolic way. So that is a new lesson, how powerful the systems can be, but still they are restricted. But since they are so powerful already, there are now several things possible. First of all, you can train them even better, that's machine teaching, or you can connect the, this very, very powerful machine that has apparent understanding with other methods like agents, like specialized inferencing systems, yeah? like, for instance, in a credit card check. Yeah? You cannot rely now to have the language model do a credit card uh, check, yeah? but you can combine the power of the large language model and make the current more symbolic rule-based credit card checks much more efficient. So in this, uh, one of the next waves will be, or it's already starting, connecting uh, large language models with knowledge graphs, huge databases, specialized inference systems, and many, many other methods. Yeah, And this is then the power that will solve many of the things that a language model alone cannot do. I was going to ask you exactly that. You gave the answer just before, and that's perfect. <laughs> a little bit early in the interview, but that's uh, that's that's very good uh, to hear that already now, Fury. Now, of course, we're in the in the middle of our topic, large language models and Nionic. I went to your uh, website uh, and uh, I, I saw two claims. One was the generative AI for industry, which, of course, we from the Industrial AI podcast are very, very interested in hearing that. And the second one is uh, leveraging the LLMs to empower global businesses with multilingual and industrial. So I see these two, maybe a two, maybe there's a third one for later, but industry and multilingual, which maybe you want to talk about a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so let's start with the industrial part. What we figured out is that the knowledge in the large language models is very unevenly distributed because They did not undergo a systematic education, but people rather sampled huge text sets like crawled from the web, like the common crawl, the Wikipedia, uh, collections of books, actually mainly more novels than nonfiction books, and lots of other collections that people had of texts. Yeah? And then they fed the system, and you cannot expect by such a method to have an even coverage of domains or fields because it's purely accidental. Even the multilinguality is accidental. Uh, the multilinguality was not planned, but since you take a common crawl and you take maybe, you can take Wikipedias from several languages, of course, yeah, then you get seemingly multilingual models, but they are not good and in, in, uh, equally good in all the languages because in some languages you had very few uh, data and in others like English and the large languages you had a lot. 
So then that's what we found when we tested systems concerning industrial demands, that the system knew other languages, but not in a reliable way. Yeah? So there were gaps in the, in the understanding, and also there are huge gaps in the industrially relevant knowledge. Yeah? Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But industry cannot rely on something that works in unpredictable ways. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does not, because then checking the system would take maybe more than producing the results uh, by humans. Yeah? So we need to have a system that then is educated so well uh, with respect to the languages. And different industries have different languages they need to. There are global players that need to talk in all languages, and then there are some industries that are pretty fine with, okay, with one or two languages. Yeah. So it's completely different which languages and which industrial knowledge, which combination is needed, but there are right now huge gaps in the, in the system. So that kind of training, uh, machine teaching still needs to be done. Right, and exactly that, the training we'll talk about a little bit later. We do small conferences and the need for what we have said, a European or a global industrial foundation model has come up several times. And I'm very much looking forward to hear from you how you think of how you're going to make that available. And if it's maybe going to be even open source for other people as well. Is that a thing that you want to... Yeah, we, we are, of course, we are hoping to have one, we are striving for it, uh, to have one model that is much better suited for industry and society already by having a different data selection for the pre-training and applying different benchmarking tests yeah, for measuring the quality. But we don't think that this model will already fill the needs. Uh, we certainly believe that models need to be adapted then. We call it vertical models for the needs of special vertical sectors of industry. Um, because you having all the knowledge equally in one big model, we don't really believe in. So in these models, the vertical models, it's not sure whether they will be open because that's probably more the stuff that uh, we will sell to industries and there is one more level of specialization, and this is to then feed in the data of individual companies. There is a possibility now of fine-tuning models in a way that leaves the base model intact. But, uh, there are methods of fine-tuning systems by only adding weights, adding parameters that are particular to one need. And that's another business model. Yeah? It's a business model that you sell people extensions of nets and they are proprietary to the company. And actually, the company, I mean, even we as the producers of the main net cannot use the proprietary knowledge. And this is wonderful. Yeah, It's, it's like a two-key system. Yeah, It's a possibility now to have a base model and then have specializations for individual companies that are not only legally proprietary, but that stay proprietary by design. Yeah, And that is actually what we are counting in. Right, so we just were with an injection molding company, just as one example, out of the industrial space. They could fine-tune just for themselves, or they could decide yeah. that this model, on top of the foundation model, they're going to sell as a business model to the world of injection molding. Exactly. I think as an exactly, exactly. They can fine-tune and then right. either use it internally for their own purposes, and, interesting enough, by design, if we play it right, they can keep the extensions on their model, but to have an, a very rich kind API type connection between the base model and their extensions. Okay. Uh, so running inference on the system so that not even us, we could steal that. <laughs> so that's a, that's the thing, because right yeah. now some companies are trusting now OpenAI or Microsoft and send their data. Mm. But some companies are not, because if it comes to the most secret data, they are not even sending it to Microsoft. Uh, yeah, I, I like to call that. I learned at Intel, the crown jewels of your organization, right? You don't send them. So there you need a, a system, and that's the interesting thing. Yeah? That's the interesting thing. How can you extend the large language models, the foundation models, in such a way that people can, and there are new methods that allow for that. Yeah. So that's that's what made us being optimistic, Yeah. that there is also a good economic future, even if you have a large open source model sure. for generic use, yeah. you can make money with it with companies that have their proprietary data. Very good. Open source is not equal to free beer, right? Yeah. And you still need to be able to make money with it. 
Okay. And there's yeah. a second thing maybe I, I should add, and this is that we see, that's why I said we are striving and hoping for an open source model. But it could be that legislation goes a different way because right now you have different parts uh, in legislation. There are parts of legislation, like for instance, text data mining law that requires company not to take keep keep the text they extract knowledge from. Yeah, that say no, you have to delete them. Yeah, so then there may be other laws now in the AI Act that say no, you have to keep the data. You have to stay transparent. Yeah, if the government or later if there's a claim. You need to be explainable. You need to keep the data. Okay, then we keep the data. But then the publishing companies say, no, no, you should not. You should not. I mean, you can maybe learn from it, but never have the data. You cannot have our data. Yeah, it's not. It's impossible. So there are forces pulling in different directions, and it's not really what will come out. Unfortunately, will probably not be who is right or wrong, but who has more power. Which of the sectors is it? The AI industry, the user industry, or the publishing industry, the media? Somebody will win, and depending on that, open source systems may be either completely open source or only partially open source. Yeah. It depends on how the AI legislation in the end will shape. If we have time, we'll come back to the AI act at the end. But maybe first, tell us about Nionic. Since when does Nionic exist? Your USP, maybe we talked about. I think so. So the company is, is very new. It started in May. It uh, actually goes back to an initiative we had at the German AI Association to get together with other associations and industrial partners. It was called Lean, a Large European AI Models, L-E-A-M. And we even got a contract from the German government, from the Ministry of Economics, to work out a kind of a blueprint, a plan, and see, is it, is it feasible for Europe? How, how would it be feasible to catch up with the state of the art in the US and China? And we worked that out. And since there was no immediately public funding for that available, not in sight, we decided to seek private investment and, and simply do it both for society, but also for economic, for commercial purpose. Okay, sounds good. So that's interesting. We'll, we'll come to that in a moment as well. One more technical question. I'm going to ask if your foundation models to stay with them, if they're going to be based on transformers. And the reason that I ask, and for you listeners not to confuse Hans with um, another uh, Uskurite called Jacob, which is your son. And he was one of the co-writers of the, in the meantime, famous Attention is All You Need paper 2017, right? So not to confuse both, but maybe not only for reasons of being uh, the father of one of the persons. Are your foundation models going to be based on Transformer as well? Or? Yeah, they are right now. Actually, all large, without exception, all large foundation models are based on the Transformer architecture. And the fact that uh, one of the co-authors was my son, we had only one effect of that one single effect that was that I looked into the Transformers maybe earlier than other people. And so even on my former company, we already used Transformer-based foundation models rather early for industrial fine-tuning. But otherwise, yeah, this is the main model. Probably there will be other architectures in the future, I'm pretty sure. But for the time being, all the difference among the models are not in the architecture. The base architecture is always the same. Yeah? The, it's mainly in the data, in the teaching, yeah? in the teaching, in the way of teaching and in the in the data that I used for teaching. You may have heard of um, Sepp Hochreiter, who um, believes he's going to move the transformer on the side through XLST. I'm not sure you've heard of it, but... Yeah, of course. I mean, actually, I and many people are expecting that the power of memory may be connected with the power of multi-head self-attention, so that the general learning system that links non-adjacent uh, parts and in the input data, yeah, so and learns from it. So, of course, but now I think Sepp Hochreiter, he comes from LSTMs and he tries to add some of the power of transformers. Uh, of attention to the powerful recurrent memory-based model. So that's okay. one way. Uh, there's the, there can be also the other way of, of taking as a core more the transformer models uh, with the, based on self-attention and then in a controlled way adding memory, yeah, probably also through recurrency. But I would have guessed that the second one may be more successful 
but it could as well be that Sepp Hochreiter is right and the other way also works. Uh, so we have to see. He, he, see. Needs, to show. he needs to show. The, the exactly. Proof, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Let's wait. Time is going to tell. We're going to need to close off here. Uh, one, one thing I really am interested in, you studied University of Texas. So you were in the United States. You worked in Beijing. You have been a professor in Germany. So let's look at where are we in, in Europe with our capabilities of typically always saying we're very good at base research. SEP is just only one example, I would say. But then not being capable of putting our base technology into the world and, and make something useful out of it, which you are now going to yep. prove is that we are capable of doing that, right? Right now, it's held yeah, before. It's actually two different things. One, one problem was the general problem that we always had in well, turning good ideas into business. And so that's why we lost some of our best minds. The majority of the AI pioneers of this new AI revolution in the U.S. are not born in the U.S., so the United States does not only have maybe better markets or better in, in industrial bases for this type of innovation, but it had also the attraction, monetary attraction mainly, and also the uh, research system that attracted uh, most of the very good people, even the Turing Prize winners. They are European, yeah. So by origin, yeah, in, in the US. But now there's a second problem. The second problem is that the infrastructure is so damn expensive for training such models that even American universities cannot do it anymore. So that's a second problem now. So we have two problems. And in, in Germany and in Europe, it's even harder to get financing uh, at this level. Now, until recently, it seemed pretty bleak. Fortunately, now there are some cases of investments that are large enough, like with Mistral and... Uh, we had Poro just two days ago, right? Two or three days ago. Right. There's, Finland, yeah. there's, the, uh, there's a Silo AI, very good uh, right. system. So I think there are very good signals now in Europe that maybe I'm a little more optimistic than I was at the beginning of this year. So there's now a, a couple of companies. Also, the, the French company Light On that is behind, partially behind the Falcon 40B open source model. There is very, very good companies now, a couple of companies in, in Europe. We are just one, one of them. And if they manage to, that still doesn't solve the problem that our research is now left behind and decoupled. That needs to be solved. So the society, politics also needs to do something very, very quickly. In the US, they already did. They had a task force at the White House. Okay. They proposed to spend $2.4 billion for ramping up the infrastructure for uh, education and research. And this is still missing in Europe. We, we urgently need something of that sort. I'm with you. Are you still going to be dependent on training your foundation model on, let's say, the U.S. or even Chinese uh, hyperscalers? Or, I mean, I think Poro, as, uh, yes. I, I believe they're doing something or they can use a supercomputer in Finland as an example. So do we have resources or are you dependent on? There are a few resources only, unfortunately. They are not enough for all the companies. Yeah, there is the Lumi system, partially funded by the European Union, partially by Finland, that is used by, among others, by Silo. Right. There's the Leonardo system of equal size with NVIDIA processors in Italy, also funded largely by European Union. But adding all of these resources together, they may not even meet 10% of the demand. Yeah. So that means we need urgently more systems, both for the commercial applications, for, for training by companies, but we also need better infrastructures because otherwise we will never get any students who, who ever had contact and, and were trained on, on this type of AI. Yeah, that's terrible that the students leave the universities and, and never came close to uh, the latest technology. Last question then, talking about students or other people who, you know, are you looking for colleagues? You're based here in Berlin, but not only, you are in other parts of the world. If people are interested in joining you, are you looking for specific candidates? What should they bring? Yeah, so we in the beginning, of course, we need urgently people who hadn't been in contact yeah, with either large language models, with foundation models. And this is very hard to get. Our CTO 
luckily got his experience at OpenAI, so he was there when the GPT-3 model was trained. But there are very few people to be gotten. But of course, we also need other types of people for the data work, for building the industrial applications, building APIs. So if we get very good applications from other parts of the world, it not necessarily uh, everybody has to move to uh, Berlin. All the way to Berlin, let me tell you, I grew up here. It's a good place. <laughs> so you should, you should consider it. It's an exciting place. Sounds great. Hans, thank you very much. When can we expect uh, the first solution, so to say, from Ionic? Uh, next year, yeah. So we, next year? Uh, yeah, okay. we started in May. We are now building up uh, slowly uh, smaller models, and, and the tests are very, very good. So we are right now uh, working on a, on a 7B model, which already has quite a bit of up-to-date uh, knowledge as opposed to the other systems and industrially relevant uh, knowledge in there. So even if it's still a small model, but next year we see much larger models and uh, we are in parallel to the models. We are already working on some showcase industrial applications together with industrial partners. Looking forward to and we'll, we'll stay very close and listen and see to what you will be doing. Good luck with Nionic, Hans. All right. Thanks, Peter, for the, for the demanding but well-worded and well-taken questions. Thank you. Thank you.